Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Thank you for your welcome. It's actually fantastic to be here. Thank you for Tim, the campus pastor, and Jason uh, for inviting Jane and I to be with you today. It's been a pleasure to be at the man camp yesterday and on Friday night and to be sharing with you this morning and bringing what we believe is just a beautiful, beautiful series with a stunning message that will impact our nation and I believe impact you, your life, your family. And we're looking to unearth stories of faith because one of the narratives, one of the kind of storylines within Australia's culture is that we were basically settled by the off-casts of England. They were sent out here on a ship because they had nowhere, nowhere for them in the UK anymore. And they landed on our shores. They were a godless bunch. In fact, not long after they, they arrived, a, place, a person described Sydney, New South Wales, the colony, as hell on earth. And we've always sort of been a secular nation ever since, and we still are today. Question is, is that true? And what we need to do, or what we're wanting to do, and what we're seeking to do in this series is to unearth stories of faith. Uh, when you go to the table and you see my wife, Jane, I want you to know that she's uh, the producer of this series. Uh, so all of the series that we've done, she's the producer of them. My friends actually say to me, Carl, you hosted a show. Your wife did a lot of work. And that's basically true. And, uh, and the book, the anthology, uh, is, is, is basically mostly her work as well. And it's just a joy to be here with you today sharing the stories and introducing this series, Faith Runs Deep, to you. But more than that, to talk about the stories that we unearthed. So if we're unearthing stories of faith, if we're unearthing the influence of Jesus, what exactly did we unearth? And I I just want to give you a, a taste of what we unearthed and give you a challenge out of what we've unearthed in these stories. And the first is that God was here from the very beginning. Now, you would have noticed there was Sandra Dumas. She, Sandra and her husband, Willie, run a church down the Tweed Heads. We interviewed her as an indigenous leader and a church leader within the Australian culture. And she talked about the fact that, that faith in the indigenous people have always been here for, for basically hundreds, if not thousands of years before European settlement. And there, there's this notion that God has established himself in this nation with those people. Now, some of you will be a bit nervous about that because you're thinking, oh, what about Jesus and don't you need Jesus and what is that? If you look at the, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, pretty depressing guy. I mean, basically, if you read Ecclesiastes, if you're having a bad day, Ecclesiastes is not the place to start for inspiration, you know? Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. In the middle of this book, chapter three, which I guess is more the start than the middle, he actually says is God has placed eternity in the hearts of humanity. And here's this idea that God has placed that within us. And, and, and the, these the indigenous of our nation had this sense that there was more to life, there was more to the world. And there here's this notion of the deep spiritual roots within our nation. And even Paul in the New Testament, when he writes to the church at Rome, and he's kind of dealing with the question, well, how does God would deal with the people who've never met Jesus or never heard of Jesus? Well, in Paul's day and even to our day, people ask that question. And Paul says, when he writes to these people he'd never met in Rome, he actually says these words. He says, for since the creation of, God, uh, of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So nobody 
is without excuse. In other words, there's this opportunity for all people to see the creation of God and turn and worship their creator. And that was what was happening with the indigenous people. But even Sandra said, but we needed Jesus. And this colonialization of Australia is, is an awful story. And what happened to the indigenous of this nation is an awful story. And we actually deal with that in one episode. But what happened when the first fleet came? That the faith was, was part of the first fleet. And most of you, some of you, maybe one or two perhaps, know that a guy called Richard Johnson was the chaplain on the first fleet. And there's this question about, so why was Richard Johnson the chaplain on the first fleet? It, and it's, there's this notion, because it's never really talked about, and nobody knows a great, seems to know much about it today. And it's almost like he, you know, took a job with the government. He's looking for a steady job. The government are offering an opportunity to, to uh, sort of be the religious representative on the set of boats going out in uh, 1788. So why not take this government job? Was that why Richard Johnson was there? See, Richard Johnson was actually recruited by two of the greats of, of the United Kingdom, of the British church at that time. One of those was William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was in the British Parliament. He led the, the abolition of the slave trade and then the abolition of slavery. Slave trade abolished in 1809. Uh, slavery was abolished in 1833. Interestingly, three days before Wilberforce died. And Wilberforce had this heart for the gospel and a heart for his nation. And he and other church leaders, evangelical Protestant church leaders at the time, were not happy about the first fleet. But he goes, went to his friend, William Pitt. Now, William Pitt was the prime minister. William Pitt's dad had been the prime minister. William Pitt was a friend of, of William Wilberforce. Do you know that William Pitt became prime minister when he was age 24? And he, he decides that this is a great idea to, to get rid of the convicts. They can't send them to America anymore. They've lost the war of independence with America. So they've got to look for somewhere else, and here's the colony. And Wilberforce goes to Pitt and says, if you're going to send these boats to Australia, you're going to have an evangelical, Protestant, gospel-minded pastor on that boat, and we're going to help choose him. And so he got together with John Newton, now, some of you will know the name John Newton. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, as I keep telling everybody. The original, not the one with the new hipster verse in it. The original Amazing Grace was written by John Newton. And some of you might think I was a great hymn writer. John Newton was a great church leader. In fact, the church that he led at that time in the 17th century actually still stands in the middle of London. It's just near the Bank of England, near Bank Station on the Tube. And he, he was a, a leading evangelical. And they got together and they said, who can we put on this boat? Who would go and see this as a task of taking the gospel to the South Seas? And through a few connections, they decided that Richard Johnson was the best guy. So they approached Richard Johnson. And his first response was, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Perhaps not in those terms, but essentially he was not particularly keen. And then he thought... What, what if God's in this? What, what if that's God's call on my life? What if that's what God wants me to do? And remarkably, none of us should ever lose this. Remarkably, he said yes. He actually brought his wedding forward to get on the first fleet. What do you reckon that conversation, men, would have been like with your fiancé? Great news. After the wedding, we're going on a cruise. The accommodation when we get there, maybe not so good. And he comes. 
And he comes not just as a kind of chaplain doing the religious duty for a, for a, for a government. He came as a gospel-minded follower of Jesus to bring the gospel of Jesus to the South Seas. That's why he came. And those that followed him in that same role, like Samuel Marsden, who's often given a pretty bad rap, in some ways rightly so, other ways unhelpfully. But Samuel Marsden, William Cowper, and others that followed, many others that followed, came here because they were committed to the gospel right from the start, right from the very beginning. In fact, there's even a, a, a theory about one of the reasons that Australia was settled was as, and those who were sent was as an evangelical experiment. An evangelical experiment. And while you might think today, gosh, well, that was a bit of a failure, if you look back early in, this, in the last century, you would actually say it was quite successful. What we uncovered, that God was here, faith was here, the gospel was here, right from the very beginning. But we also uncovered in the earliest years is that failure is never final. Failure doesn't wipe you out of life. And that's demonstrated as we uncovered the life of Lachlan and Elizabeth Macquarie. Lachlan Macquarie was one of our first governors in, in, in Sydney and New South Wales. He came in the earliest parts of the 18th century, was here for about 12 years. Lachlan Macquarie had a checkered history as a young man, uh, not a great history. Then he marries Elizabeth Macquarie. She was a, a, a really pious, committed uh, Anglican a church attender, a, a follower of Jesus. And as they came out, he found out on the boat that he, he got the governor's job. In fact, he, somebody else was supposed to do it. He didn't want to do it, so Lachlan Macquarie gets the gig. And on the way out in the boat, Lachlan Macquarie is, is reading the Bible with his wife Elizabeth, and he's asking this question, what does it mean to be a Christian governor? Now keep in mind, what is he governing? He's governing the off-casts of England. He's governing what some saw as a criminal class. He's governing those that they didn't, the, the jails couldn't hold them in England, and they've been sent to the far end of the seas, the far end of the world. How do you govern that lot? You're governing a bunch of, uh, of uh, army recruits uh, and those who, are the, the, those who are the prison guards, essentially, who don't want to be there. How do you govern in that space? And one of the things that struck Lachlan Macquarie one of the things that shifted in his heart, one of the things that was really important was to him was everybody deserves a second chance. If God gives us, for Lachlan Macquarie, him, if God gives me a second chance, a second opportunity, how much more should we extend that to everybody around us? So Governor Bly, who was before Lachlan Macquarie, emancipated, which is a fancy word for gave freedom to, so freedom to the convicts, he emancipated two convicts, two convicts. When Lachlan Macquarie, in his nine or ten years as the governor, emancipated 1,550 convicts. Some of those convicts actually went on to start the first, be on the committee of the first organisation ever to start in Australia. You know what that was? The Bible Society. The second organisation to start had a committee with some of the same people. It was the Bank of New South Wales. And those people were given a second chance. Now, apparently, Lachlan Macquarie deleted his Facebook page just after his, uh, he, toward the end of his life. So, sadly, we don't have his posts anymore. We didn't, he didn't write a great deal. But what we do have in the Mitchell Library of New South Wales is his Bible, Elizabeth's Bible, and their, and, and their prayer books, the Anglican prayer books, which is very important to them. And what 
this is going to sound odd, I know, but what they underlined demonstrate what was important to them. And John Harris, who you saw, on, you wouldn't have noticed, but you saw in the clip, he's written a fabulous book called One Blood about the story of the, the awful story about the indigenous people of, of, of Australia. And he also has written a book called Judging the Macquarie's. And in our interview with John Harris, he made the point that for John Harris, the, for, for Lachlan Macquarie, in his underlying and one of the last things he ever wrote was the, was the absolution. Now, Baptists, we're not big on kind of liturgy and prayers, but the absolution is a part of the liturgy of Anglican services, and it's the moment where the priest basically declares over the people God's forgiveness and grace and mercy. These are the, these are in the 16th, uh, the 16th uh, century version of the prayer book. These are the words that Lachlan Macquarie underlined. These are the words that were really important to him. Look, God Almighty, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desirest not the death of a sinner, but rather that he may turn from his wickedness and live, pardon and absolve you of all who truly repent. That was important. And what it meant was he extended that to people around him. And just in case you think, well, you know, it's a shame you're sort of more focused on the prayer book than the Bible. These words, this prayer is is essentially taken out of God's word. And in, in, when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, in the second chapter, the first 10 verses, he outlines what, what, what the gospel is. At the beginning of it, he says, we're all dead in our sins. Now, dead doesn't mean as bad as you can get, as evil as you can be. Dead means your inability to respond to God. We can't respond to God by our own volition. And then Paul goes on to say, God who is rich in mercy... He extends grace. He sends Jesus. He gives the opportunity. And at the end of this passage, Paul says this, for it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. It's not of a work of ourselves. It is a gift from God. And that gift was important to Lachlan Macquarie, and that gift he wanted to give to the people around him. If you want to understand why in Australia, do, are we really into giving people a second go? Are we really into the notion of equality? Now, whether we do it well, we're not particularly good at it. If you want to understand where does that value come from, I think you can see it in the earliest years in the work of Lachlan Macquarie, who gave freedom, opportunity, and second chance because he believed that failure was never final. But what we also uncovered in these stories is while failure is never final, and God's here from the beginning, is that winning doesn't deliver. And the stories of faith of our nation, winning doesn't deliver what you want. One of the great stories that we were able to tell and follow was actually the story of my wife, Jane, who's here, my wife, Jane's great-grandfather. Jane's great-grandfather was Australia's first ever sporting world champion at any sport, ever. And Ned Trickett is his name. And if you know the name Ned, if you know the name Trickett and you look around, like just in the middle of Surface Paradise, there's a Trickett Street, I think it's called. That name comes up all over the place. And it was because he became Australia's first sporting world champion. He went to London in 1876, and on the Thames in London, on the Mortlake to Putney course, he beat the world champion and became the world champion of single skulls across the globe. The, the English were not happy that uh, some 
bloke from the colony turns up and beats their champion in the world championship. What they would have been even more unhappy had they found out was that Ned Trickett's dad, George Trickett, was sent to Australia as a convict. And he was sentenced to death at Lincoln, he was in Lincolnshire jail and he was sentenced to death. Then a chaplain came around and got him commuted from death to transportation. He was moved to Woolwich on the the Thames in a hulk and then he was transported to Sydney. He lived in, he was in, in he was there jailed for, for, uh, as as a convict for 14 years, then given freedom. When he was given freedom, in Woolwich, in Sydney, he started a, a stonemasonry business. And he cut the stones that were sandstone blocks that were used on the wall between the opera house. They're still there. The wall that goes from the opera house around the, the botanical gardens around to Mrs. Mulcahy's chair. Many of those walls came from George Trickett's uh, stonemasonry business. His sons, his four sons, would row the stones across the harbour. And what uh, Punch, the local publican, realised that the youngest kid, the youngest son, Ned Trickett, was, was outstanding at rowing. And they sent him to England and he wins the world championship. When he came back to Sydney, now you, can, you think about how many people were in Sydney at that time. Probably somewhere around 75 to 100,000 people. On, on Circular Quay, when he arrived back, 30,000 people met him. He was the rock star of the colony. He was the best known person. He was the personality. His face was actually on a whole bunch of, of, uh, of lampposts. They built a huge um, hotel in the middle of Sydney on Pitt Street, which is still there, and it was called Trickett's International Hotel. He was honoured by everybody. But winning doesn't always deliver, because later in his life, and I want to just take this aside and say, Jane always knew about the story of him being the first sporting world champion of Australia. His picture hung in, in uh, her auntie's home and then later in her own home of Ned Trickett on his, on his skulls and with his oars, this, this fabulous story of the family. What they don't tend to tell is the rest of the story. He went to Rockhampton and started a business and a pub, uh, a, as a publican. Uh, with the downturn of the, the late 19th century, he lost his money. So he lost his pub, he lost his money, and he comes back to Sydney. And he comes back to Sydney with nine children, no job, no opportunity. Now, if that were you and I, who lived our lives in basic obscurity, coming back to Sydney with nothing would have been pretty difficult. But when you'd been the rock star, when you'd been the biggest name, when you'd been the hero of the nation, and you're now walking around these these streets, and you've got nothing. And one night when he's walking around the streets... He sees a group of people and they listen to a preacher. And the preacher was a barrister. And the barrister was E.P. Field, a barrister in Sydney. And this was people on the streets telling the message of Jesus. And Trickett listened over a couple of what came back the next night. And then he went back to E.P. Field's rooms. And E.P. Field led Ned Trickett to know Jesus. Ned Trickett spent the rest of his life as a Salvation Army officer and he lived the rest of his life following Jesus. And a, a guy called Reverend O'Nee, which is a cracking name if you want it to be remembered, he said this about, about Trickett. He was a better man in every way and happier than when he was the champion oarsman of the world. Winning doesn't deliver. 
On that, on that clip, you would have seen a guy called Tim Kelly. Tim Kelly's a bull rider, runs a bull riding school uh, out in Kingaroy. And we interviewed Tim Kelly uh, at his bull riding school, just on the edge of the ring. He's the guy with the big hat, hard to miss. And uh, we, Tim told his story. And Tim's story is that in the 1970s, it, he, he was a rock star in bull riding and saddle bronc riding. He went to Calgary and won the under 25, under 23's world championship of saddle bronc riding in Calgary. Came back as the champion of the world. Came back in, in the, the big rodeos like, rodeos, like the one at Mount Isa, huge rodeos. He was the guy that everybody knew. I said, what were you like then, Tim? He said, I'd ride during the day and I'd drink myself stupid at night. That was his life. He would drink more than anybody else. He was still winning rodeos, rodeos. he was still winning his saddlebrock riding, he was still winning, winning his bull riding, but he was just hopelessly miserable in his life. Winning wasn't delivering. Winning didn't deliver for Ned Trickett in the end of his life. Winning's not was not delivering for Tim Kelly. And there was a million dollar rodeo that, that was held between Sydney and Melbourne. Million bucks was a huge thing. And, and Tim Kelly decides to join this rodeo. Because there was so much money, all these Americans came out to, to, to ride in it as well. And what Kelly realized, and when that we, he mentioned in that clip, is he's looking around, and these guys, there's a whole bunch of them that weren't going to the pub. They weren't getting smashed every night drinking. They were going off to a hall by themselves. And he said, and he, said he noticed something about them that was different. And what he said I, on that clip, I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to find out what these guys have got that I don't have. What did he discover? They knew Jesus. He went and heard a biker give his testimony. And had this biker, biker came to know Christ. And he said, if, if he can do that for him, he can do that for me. Changed his life. Tim Kelly runs a bull riding school. So for those of you looking for something to do in your spare time, look him up on... When, it, when people go, and they're mostly blokes, you can, you can guess why. It's an intelligence question. <laughs> they go out to, see Tim, they out to see Tim Kelly. And in the process of teaching them how to ride bulls, he shares his own faith with them. He still follows Jesus. Because winning doesn't deliver. Winning won't give you what you want. Failure's never final, but winning doesn't deliver. And what we discovered and unearthed is time and time and time again, if you watch this series, every episode has a story of somebody's life that's transformed by Jesus. I don't mean they just become a nicer, better, more upright Australian citizen. I mean their life is changed. And one of the mistakes we make in talking about Christianity or even thinking about faith and following Jesus is almost like it's like a 12-step to be a better person. Five steps to live a better life. Three steps to be more successful. That's what it is to be a, be a Christian. No, it's not. It's not and it's never been. It's about the good news that Jesus died and rose again so you and I can be new people, can find faith in Jesus, can have our lives renewed. And one of the, one of the great stories, there's so many, but was, was Tony Huang, who again, he's the Vietnamese guy that was on the clip, standing in the middle of what was Cabramatta, right in the middle of Cabramatta. We, we interviewed him with pigeons and people walking past, and he told his story. And Tony Huang's story is his parents came out from Vietnam on a boat as refugees. And when they arrived, what they did was what every, every new refugee or new immigrant to Australia often do, they start with nothing and they work harder than everybody else. Now, Tony was born in Australia after they arrived. There was 10 children in the family. When his parents came, they started to work. His dad didn't ever learn English. 
Tony never really learnt Vietnamese. Communication was not a strong part of their relationship. His dad would work flat out all day and then drink hard at night. He was violent and difficult. And Tony was just desperate to be loved and looked after and cared for and looked for the place where he might find acceptance. And guess where he found it? In the gangs of, of Cabramatta. And if you remember any of the history of Sydney, you might know that Cabramatta became the drug capital of Sydney. If you wanted to buy heroin, Cabramatta is where you went. And many people would actually... Uh, get the train from anywhere, Newcastle, Wollongong, around New South Wales, around Sydney. They'd catch the train to Cabramatta. And before they even got off the station, people like Tony Huang was there as a 14-year-old selling you heroin. He got caught one day, an undercover policeman. He tried to sell drugs to him. He catches him. He gets taken to the police station. He rings his mum and he says, Mum, I've messed up. I've been arrested. Can you come and get me? Tony's mum's response was, you got yourself into this, you can get yourself out. He was jailed. And when he came out, he wasn't reformed. He just worked out better ways of selling heroin. He, he headed up the gangs. He got his older mates uh, to, to rent houses for him. He, he, he was the person who was almost the kingpin of selling heroin. As, one, as not the, but one of the gangs of Cabramatta. And yet... He's miserable. He had friends dying from overdoses. He had friends that were killed in, the, in gang warfare. He almost died of overdoses because he started to use heroin himself. And at one point, he goes to a, a church because he had some connections, vague connections with the Catholic church. And he sits in the church and he weeps and he weeps and he just kind of, maybe God can help. And he's saying, Lord, I need a sign. Give me a sign. Yeah, I'm, I'm desperate here. Give me a sign. Nothing happens in the church. So he goes home, and the next morning, very next morning, he's working, walking through Cabramatta, right where we interviewed him, right in the center of Cabramatta, right in the mall in the center of Cabramatta. And there's a group, group of young Christians who are singing and giving stuff out. And Tony's like, what on earth is this? And he walks past, some guy gives him a pamphlet. So he opens the pamphlet, and the pamphlet says, if you're looking for a sign... Here it is. Isn't it beautiful? Tony talked to this young guy, and the young guy said to him, Tony, God loves you, but sin stands in the way. You need to ask God for your forgiveness and open your life to Jesus. And you might remember on the clip, Tony says, on that bench, right there on that bench, I opened my life to Jesus. I wept as it happened. And God wrapped his arms around me and said, son, it's going to be all right. Changed his life. Not a five-step program to a better life, a transformation of who he was. You know what Tony Huang does now? He's the pastor of the Potter's House Church in Cabramatta. He has four kids and a beautiful wife. He's, by the way, he's kids are beautiful as well. He actually looks after six children because he looks after two of his, his sister's kids and he's not even sure where his sister is now. Tony Wang is an example of what? Transformation. The stories we unearthed is that God's been here right from the beginning. We've not, we haven't been a secular nation from the beginning, a godless hole in the, in the south back end of the world. 
We have people right from the start who believe that the person of Jesus changes lives and that the gospel came at this nation. We, we've, we've uncovered that failure is not final, but winning's not going to deliver either. And what all of us need, every one of us need, is transformation in the name of Jesus, a fresh start, a new beginning, the opportunity to know Jesus personally. That changes our present, that changes our trajectory, that changes our eternity. And it would seem to me enormously foolish if I didn't take a moment right now to say, is that where you are? Is it your moment? Is it your time to respond? Is God speaking to you? For some of you, you you're very aware of, of, of failure. You feel that that sort of is the cape that you wear. For some other people know about it. For some of you, it's, it's a secret. It's, it's a secret that you hold internally, but it's a wound that you carry every day. I'm here to remind you that failure is not final. Grace is extended to all of us. I'm here to tell you, for those of you who have hit every goal you've ever gone after, whatever goal in your career or your finances or your accumulation, you've been hitting those goals, but you actually realize that winning's not delivering. You're not feeling any better about yourself and you're not feeling any better about life. In fact, the more you win, the more hollow it feels. Do you know why? Because winning doesn't deliver. God delivers. We've been created to live in a relationship with Jesus. And what this is, is a moment to say, do you need transformation? Do you need a fresh start? And for some of you, the fresh start is because you've been coming here for five years, ten years, whatever. And it's all gone a bit stale. And you're wondering what happened. God's reaching into your life in this moment. He says, come on home. Transformation is waiting. The opportunity for a fresh start is there. But you need to do what Tony did. You need to recognize what Paul said to the church at, at, at Ephesus. That we're lost and dead in our sin. And it's only Jesus that saves. And what we do is we've got to recognize that what separates us is how we live and the sin in our life. And the sin is not necessarily just what you do. The sin is your attitude towards God that you think you don't need God. But if you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I want a fresh start. I want to step into the future with you. I want to be transformed then maybe this is your moment. And I give you an opportunity to pray with me. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to say this out aloud. This is just your moment between you and your heavenly father. Tony sat on a, on a, on a bench in the middle of a street and gave his heart to Jesus. You can sit in a pew in a church and give your heart to Jesus. Why don't we pray? I, I, closing your eyes and bowing your head is not more holy. It doesn't make you more holy, but it does make you concentrate. So join me in an attitude of prayer. And if this is your moment, if God is speaking to you, why don't you respond with these words, just quietly, just in your own heart, speak to your heavenly Father. Jesus, I come to you today. Thank you that you love me. I want to say I'm sorry for how I've lived. I want to ask for your forgiveness.
Jesus, come into my life. Fill me with your spirit and give me the courage to live what I say I believe. Lord, we all come to you today because we desperately need you. We need you in our lives because some of us feel like we've failed and, and, and life is just miserable. Some of us feel like we're winning and yet still miserable. Lord, we thank you that you transform us. We thank you that you've transformed lives today, transformed lives here, transformed lives at home. And we pray and, uh, that, that each of those people would learn to follow you daily. Lord, we pray that your spirit would just fill them right now with a sense of being loved and accepted and held by Jesus. And we commit them into your hands in the days ahead. Amen. One of the things that uh, Paul writes in this little passage in Ephesians chapter 2 is he says these words, that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. If you prayed that prayer, if you know the truth of the gospel, if you follow Jesus in your life, that's your future. The heavenly realms held in Jesus' arms, looking face to face with Jesus and standing with the angels in glory. But you know who you also stand with? You stand with the heroes of the faith. You stand with the heroes that have built this church. You stand with the heroes that have made your life what it is in Jesus. You stand with the heroes of this nation. You'll stand with Lockton Elizabeth Macquarie. You'll stand with Ned Trickett. You'll stand with Richard Johnson. You'll stand with the people who have made our nation. And you know what would be great? If we honoured them before we got there. Honour the heroes of faith in our nation. Honour the stories of faith that have made this nation. Tell those stories. That's what Faith Runs Deep's about. I trust that that's what your life will be about. Bless you and thank you as we worship together. Thank you. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, we would love to encourage you on your journey. Help us help you by going to gatewaybaptist.com.au and clicking on Get Connected.